25 seconds left to play. You're listening to the Matt Wyatt Show. I want winners. This crowd is alive. Play to win the game. Wyatt from the shotgun, two backs alongside. Knock him out, John. Wyatt gets the ball. It won't be long. Wyatt back to throw. Wyatt looks. Fires toward the end zone. Passes. Caught for touchdown by Matthew Butler. Speak to him. They are who we thought they were. And we let them out the hole. I get out of hand. Just, just tell me I'm a jerk and shut up. Let's go scatter the West right tight. That's left. 372 Y sticks. He's The Matt Wyatt Show. He's Radio Wyatt. Well, how am I going to go to college? I'll just play football. It's one way to do it, Jerry. That is one way to do it. Play a little football and go to college. One way to get it done. I'm Matt in the Farm Bureau studio. Farm Bureau, go! With the home team. They are your home team at Farm Bureau. Local agents that you can deal with one-on-one. we got the phone lines open to you. 995-1059. 995-1059. Give me a shout. You could also text the show. You want to be a part of the show that way? That's a good way to do it. 885-ESPN. That is the number. 885-ESPN. You need the number itself. It's 885-3776. This show stays connected to you around the clock because of C Spire, the number one network in Mississippi. C Spire, customer inspired. For a limited time, you can switch to prepaid by C Spire. For two free gigabytes of high-speed data every month. And get a free phone with the uh, Samsung Galaxy J3. That's with a $25 unlimited plan. How about that? $25 unlimited plan. Two free gigabytes of high-speed data and a phone. $25. Doesn't get much better than that. Than what they are offering right now at C Spire. All right. Hour two of the show. Off and running. In just a few minutes, Chris Doring of the SEC Network, former Florida Gator, going to be on the show. We'll kick it around, talk a little transfer QB stuff, the impact of some new faces under center in the SEC coming up. Well, Chris was an outstanding player at Florida. Played a bunch of years in the NFL for a bunch of different teams. Beaver, I got you his number over there on the call screen, and a little information to go with it, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, housekeeping. The text line in regards to coaches and the way they go about it. Some. Here's a text on the text line. If people think that coaches in football are foul-mouthed and crude, they should spend a little more time around an infantry unit. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. I'm certainly I'm sure that's true. Nick texted the show and said. Wanting it toned down sounds like more of the sissifying of today's young men. Thank God this generation aren't the ones who landed on Omaha Beach. Yeah. You know, and look, I, I'm I'm open to the argument if, if people want to argue that it does um, instill or incubate some toughness and some focus in the minds of young people. You know, that, that, that a coach is belligerent. 
and vulgar constantly. Okay, what I mean here's what I mean by that. You know, are you arguing that at practice and in the locker room and in the meeting room and around your coach every day, if that's the way he is, loud, obnoxious, belligerent, berating, and vulgar. And if you're saying that because of that, the players get used to every single day blocking that stuff out to to find their focus in spite of all that, and that that helps them on game day. Well, oh, you know, let's let's talk about it. Maybe you're right. Maybe you're right about that. Maybe it could. Um. Again, you know, maybe there's a time and a place, but I just kind of look at it like, as a coach, why would you, when you're trying to teach, when you're trying to teach a technique or a mental thought process or checkpoints that you're going off in your head, you're trying to teach something and get it across where guys can do it, why would you teach it in such a way that they are having to block a bunch of stuff out that you're saying? Why would you teach it in a way where you're forcing them to weed through all of your BS to get to the real message? As a coach, I mean, like the rules of communication. Maybe I'm more sensitive to it now than I used to be because my job now is to communicate with radio, with podcasting, with video, during a broadcast on game day, my job is to communicate something to you and to others with little to no BS. Now, this is a little different on a radio show like this. You talk about two hours, and a lot of it is entertainment. We have fun. But anytime I'm trying to make a point, the longer I do radio, the less words it takes to do it, if I'm any good. And the last thing I would do is throw a bunch of stuff at you constantly that is distracting you or potentially off-putting and expect you to get the message. (laughs) No, it's my job to give you the message without all the stuff. Does that not make sense? And I mean, how can you argue with guys like Tony Dungy, Chuck Knoll, Bill Walsh, Tom Landry, and Joe Gibbs? Now, I understand different guys have different ways of communicating and teaching. There's lots of different ways to get it done. Some guys are intense, some are laid back. You kind of have to you know, be who you are in some of those things, but how can you argue with those coaches? And you go, well, you know, a John Gruden, loud, obnoxious, you know, cut you with his words. Yeah, but I don't think so. It may be loud, it may have profanity, but it's not berating. And if it is, it's to a point to run somebody out of town. <laughs> and it's a little different in the pros. I don't know. We can continue that debate uh, probably for as long as we want to. Right now, a little football with somebody who played a bunch of it. Going back to uh, national title-type teams and uh, record-setting teams under Steve Spurrier in Florida in the mid-'90s and uh, for the better part of a decade with a bunch of different teams in the NFL, and now he's an analyst on your television. Chris Doring, former Florida Gator, on your radio right now. Chris, I really appreciate some time here with you. It was good to meet you uh, face-to-face at SEC Media Days last week. Hope things are going well for you. We're getting close, man. It'll be here before we know it. Yeah. 
I tell you what, first of all, man, it's my pleasure to be on with you. Just uh, the least I could do for all the times you've come on our show, so a little <laughs> reciprocation here. And I agree with you, man. Great uh, getting a chance to catch up in person. So many of these different folks from around the conference we get a chance to interact with and be on each other's shows, but very rarely do we get a chance to uh, meet in person. So it was uh, it was great catching up with you, man, and it's my pleasure to be on with you today as it means we're we're creeping ever closer to uh, kickoff of the greatest time of year. That's it. Yeah, the the Gators are going to play now, what, 29 days against Miami, so it'll be here before we know it. Um, hey, Chris, um, but before I, I – and I gave you a heads up, wanted to kick it around some of the, you know, the impact of transfer kids, but something we just have been discussing on this show that, that came up, and I just want to ask your opinion on it if I could, and that is you know, coaching styles. The context here is this guy on Last Chance U that's, that was interviewed, A.J. Brown, the former Ole Miss receiver who's now the Titans, tweeted that he said all coaches coach like that, a lot of cussing, berating their players. Tony Dungy commented and to him and kind of said, well, I disagree, and he mentioned some guys who were great, Chuck Knoll and others who taught but never berated players and didn't have to use a lot of vulgarity. For you, you played all those years in the SEC, you played all those years for the Jaguars and the Bengals and the Broncos and all those teams, the Steelers and the NFL. You've been around so many coaches. Is there a do you look at it as a negative, a right and a wrong when coaches have certain styles where it's just constant berating and belligerent, uh, you know, uh, profanity, frankly, or is it just the way it is? How do you look at that? Well. I think, first of all, uh, I appreciate you um, asking me about this because I, I think I'm probably the perfect guy to be able to talk about it because of exactly what you mentioned, the fact that I, I played uh, for so many different coaches mm-hmm. throughout my college and NFL career. And, you know, I look at it a little bit as a negative that I bounced around so much over my 10 years in the NFL, but I also look at it as a positive. I got a chance to live in a bunch of great cities. I got a chance to meet a bunch of great friends on different teams that I still have relationships with. And most importantly, I got exposed to a, a bunch of different coaching styles as well as different schemes. You know, I, I look at it, you know, I came from a place in college where I was coached by maybe the, the ultimate offensive-minded head coach. Mm-hmm. And so it's a little bit easier when you're a wide receiver and you interact as much as you do with a guy like Steve Spurrier who's intimately involved with the, the, uh, the quarterback and receiver meetings. It's out there showing the quarterback, showing the receivers actually how to do it. So I developed a pretty close rapport with him and, and obviously um, was a big part of, of what the success of those teams was uh, during that period of time offensively. And so I, I think I, I created a little soft spot in, in his heart for me. So it's, uh, it's interesting in, in that dynamic versus what I experienced uh, when I went to a place like Pittsburgh with, with uh, Bill Cower, who was a defensive-minded head coach and was involved a little bit more on that side of the ball. So I, I didn't have as close a a rapport with, with him in that circumstance. But in terms of the way coaching styles go, you know, I, I'm a guy that, that comes from the locker room, as you are. I, I, I probably cuss more than I should, and, and uh, I think that's part of the dynamic that exists sometimes, right or wrong, in the locker room. I, I think it's funny to watch shows like um, you know, the, uh, the uh, Hard Knocks on HBO where mm-hmm. people do get a real look at what it's like. I think that's one of the, the greatest things about what Hard Knocks does is it gives the the best authentic viewpoint of what it's like to go through an NFL training camp. And, and that language that's used so many times by coaches is just the way it is. Mm-hmm. Now, the berating part, I'm, I'm not big on the berating part. I mean, I, I came from a, a college system at Florida where we were, we were 
you know, it was it was loose, it was fun, uh, the atmosphere was enjoyable, and Coach Spurrier, while he didn't, you know, berate you in terms of cussing you out, he got you with the, the, the sarcasm. I mean, the, the great line that we use so much in talking about Coach Spurrier is the old, hey, it's not your fault, it's my fault for putting you in there. And, you know, that's <laughs> kind of the the, uh, the worst thing that you can hear said from Coach Spurrier. But, um, you know, it, I went from, from there directly to Jacksonville where Tom Coughlin was the head coach, and it could not have been a more different 180 degrees of, of, of coaching styles for those two guys. And I can tell you, it was a tough acclimation for me. I ultimately ended up getting cut um, in, in camp and went on to play my first couple of years with the Colts. But I can tell you, it was not enjoyable for me. I was looking forward to getting out of there. Um, so I think it's a matter of, of players just being able to react a little differently to different styles of coaches. And I think that, that's sometimes why you see players flourish when they leave one team to go to another because they're in an environment that ma- makes them a little bit more comfortable and easy to be coached. Yeah, that's outstanding stuff. Chris Doring on your radio right now. Y'all follow him on Twitter if you don't. Just spell his name out, Chris Doring, former uh, NFL vet and uh, great player for those Spurrier teams, mid-90s at Florida. And he's on your TV, too, on the SEC Network. So that's a great segue. Players can flourish in a different scenario, a different situation than the one they were previously in. Quarterbacks, we've got some of those. Transfers in the SEC. What do you think, this is an overall umbrella question, but what do you think the impact is going to be in the league this year of transfer quarterbacks? Yeah. It's interesting that you you talk about guys being able to flourish in different systems. In our case in the SEC, you're having a couple guys that are transferring in because of the knowledge of those systems. And Tommy Stevens and his uh, familiarity with what Joe Moorhead does uh, schematically on offense. And the same at Arkansas with Ben Hicks coming from SMU where Chad Morris was the previous coach. So it's definitely, you got to imagine, that's a leg up in terms of, of knowing the system, but also the relationship that probably exists between those two people um, and, the, and their coaches. So I, I think that's something to kind of keep your eye on. I think it's, it's crazy, too, and you and I kind of talked about this at Media Days, I think, is you know, nine quarterbacks uh, being taken to SEC Media Days last mm-hmm. week. What, what, a, what a crazy contrast it was to just 12 months ago when probably half of the teams in our conference were in the midst of quarterback battles. We didn't even know who the starting quarterback was going to be in a lot of cases mm-hmm. uh, at this time last year. So uh, it, it makes you feel a lot more confident about what the offensive um, – uh, production should be this year. I think it's a, a year where the SEC can have more, um, off- a little bit more of an offensive uh, overall feel to it. But at the same time, man, the integration of some of these guys, I'm excited about um, seeing what's going to happen with um, Tommy Stevens and, and, and with Ben Hicks. I think Ben Hicks probably had a chance to, to win that job initially, and, and um, because of his knowledge, I wouldn't be surprised to see Starkle get a chance to take it over later. But I think it just is another reason to be optimistic. And, and guys like you and I, I think we defer to, hey, wanting to watch a little bit more offensively, aesthetically pleasing uh, sport. Uh, the defensive <laughs> battles are great, but uh, I'm looking forward to seeing more uh, offensive output from the teams in our conference this year. No doubt about it. More of a threat to throw the ball maybe at State. Um, if, if Tommy wins it, who knows? Maybe maybe more of a threat to run the ball some from that quarterback position with Kelly Bryant at Missouri, do you do you like that fit in Missouri? It's interesting, isn't it? I didn't even bring that up. I'm glad you did. But I mean, all of us are 
so many of us in the media are very excited about all uh, about Missouri because of not only you know the the manageability of the schedule which sets up very well for them mm-hmm. the commitment in the off season as, as Barry Odom talked about um, at media days and, and nobody transferring although they could have with the uh, NCAA postseason bowl ban being passed out but most importantly I think everybody's excited about Kelly Bryant and what he can do and, and it does concern me a little bit I mean we're talking about losing a four-year starter in Drew Locke that was incredibly productive mm-hmm. at Missouri and thinking that a, a guy that's going to come in right away is going to be able to pick up where Locke left off without any sort of um, acclimation period or out, any sort of drop-off. Uh, I, I think it's, it's interesting that he, one, ended up in Missouri to begin with. Mm-hmm. It speaks to what Derek Dooley was able to do with, with uh, Drew Locke last year and the message that he sent to Kelly Bryant about helping him develop into a, a quarterback that's more appealing to the NFL. Uh, but I think at the same time, you've you got to be able to win. Um, as a college coach, it's great to develop players to, to move on to the NFL, but if you're not winning games, uh, you're probably not long for your position. So Derek Dooley has to, to go ahead and, and battle the, the idea of wanting to make what they're doing schematically more appealing to, to the NFL, while at the same time, I think they've got to take some conceptual ideas from, from Clemson and what Kelly Bryant was able to do well, and I do think that includes running the football a little bit more, maybe than they did with Drew Locke. Um, it is a, it is you know not something that you're typically wanting to do at the NFL level, but it's something that's going to help you win ball games, and I think it's going to put pressure more on the defenses. And, and quite frankly, and I talked to Dan Mullen about the responsibility of, of Felipe Franks and in his role as the quarterback. You know, it really was him turning the corner with a better understanding that not only am I going to affect this game with me throwing the football from the pocket, I can be a, a big-time uh, contributor on the ground with my legs. Mm-hmm. Um, he was great in short yardage goal line situations last year, and it forces a defense to have to defend differently. You saw it in the, in the Chick-fil-A Peach Bowl. You saw Michigan, uh, Florida spreading out the defense formationally and really making it an easy number count for Felipe Franks, where when they, they had the numbers in the box, he was throwing the one-on-one opportunities on the outside. And when they brought folks down to, to defend the run, he's able, or when he uh, spread everybody out, he's able to, to pull the football and run himself, which he did well in that game. Mm-hmm. Chris, a couple of minutes left here. Felipe Franks there at Florida, you mentioned him, obviously has the size. Does he have NFL-type tools You know, as a thrower? He has everything you want in terms of the tools as a thrower. 6'6", six, six, he's you know, 250 plus pounds. This 30 guy that now has shown some durability as well. Uh, a guy that can spin it. It comes off nice, nicely from his hand. Mm-hmm. This year, what I'd like to see from him is some improved accuracy. Uh, missed some some throws at times last year that you just can't miss if you're going to be a guy that puts yourself in position to play in the NFL. Uh, I think the decision making was better last year than it was his first year, but still at times forces throws down the field. Mm-hmm. Is not as apt to take the checkdowns as I think he needs to. Uh, so that's where I want to see him improve this year as well. And then as a leader, I mean, that's what we've talked about a lot during the offseason here locally is him understanding his role as a leader on the offense, as a leader on this team. I watched him in the spring um, take guys to the side and, and talk through you know, some of the things that they're seeing out there on the field, taking time to throw with not only some of the younger receivers, but taking the time to help with some of the younger quarterbacks too. So I think he's developing and better understanding what that leadership role requires of him in terms of, of execution rather than just talk, which I think that that, that was kind of the case prior to, uh, to to last season. Sure. Chris, 
Um, I'm borrowing or stealing this term from another guy in radio, but that's a football sandwich right there. That's 15 minutes of a football meat sandwich. I really do appreciate all the info, and it's great to talk to you for the first time on the show. Thanks again, man. Yeah, man, it's fun. We, yeah, covered a large gamut of topics, man, and look forward <laughs> to uh, being back with you anytime, man. Great. Thank you. That's Chris Doring. Thanks again. Y'all okay. follow him on Twitter, at Chris Doring. Spell out the last name there, D-O-E-R-I-N-G. Heck of a receiver there. Record setter, in fact. Teammate of Danny Werfels and those mid-'90s Florida teams. Played for the Colts, the Broncos, the Redskins, the Steelers uh, in the NFL. <clears throat> I think his last year on a you know regular season roster in the NFL was the Steelers in 2004. Yeah, he's in the University of Florida Hall of Fame. He was the first team All SECer in '95. He was on SEC championship teams at Florida in '93, '94, and '95. And was an also uh, also an All American in that '95 season, his final year in Florida. Big time player, really nice guy, smart guy. Uh, I saw Chris play in person one time, and it was I was a recruit uh, for Ole Miss. I was on a recruiting trip to Ole Miss, sitting up in the stands, and Ole Miss hosted Florida for a game during that '94 season. And Terry Dean threw Chris. Might have been a couple touchdown passes that day. Have to go back and look it up. He's a heck of a player. All right, hope you enjoyed that. We got a team to count down coming up next. We'll go out west to the Big 12, tell you who that is, play their fight song for you. And then later, we'll talk about the MHSAA moving basketball championships to college campuses starting this year. So, a lot to get to still with a little ways to go. Stick around in the Farm Bureau studio. You're listening to The Matt Wyatt Show. Yo! Rolling along with you on this Thursday... Let me give you an update since I mentioned it it earlier in the week. Uh, My daughter, my daughter Mary Liddy is doing good, doing well, I should say. Um, Making progress after having her tonsils taken out yesterday morning. Beaver is in today for Roger. Beaver, did you ever have to have your tonsils out? Yes, I did. You remember it pretty well? Uh, I don't. I don't. Mm -hmm. I don't remember... The most important part of that, of course, is the ice cream. I know, man. Like, our freezer is so packed full of ice cream and popsicles right now. Oh, that's glorious. How how old's your daughter? She's eight. She just turned uh-huh. eight last week, in fact. Yeah. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah, she had a big week, and it was good timing, you know, before this. So she we had, you know, gifts and different things. But one of the things she wanted to do for her birthday the last couple of years is she just wants to go spend the night in a hotel. <laughs> she's not really like interested in going on this long trip somewhere. The first time it was kind of a short notice thing last year. So we just, we went down to the Hilton here in our hometown, got a room, spent the night. <laughs> she jumped on the bed and like swam in the pool and everything. So, but this year we went up to uh, Florence, Alabama. They have that, 
that Marriott place up there in Florence. It's got this big, huge swimming pool with the fountains and the waterfalls and water slide and all this. And man, we we stayed in that hotel and she swam like eight hours a day for two straight days. <laughs> and so we kind of got all that out of her system because now she's kind of down for the count for a few days here. But yeah, yeah we have lots of ice cream and popsicles in the fridge right now. She's doing okay. She's doing okay. Mm-hmm. It kind of medicine wore off and it kind of hit her pretty hard last night. But I tell you, she's resilient, man. Eight years old and she's, she's not talking. Like it hurts to talk. So she has a little notepad and she wants to say anything. She just writes a note and hands it to us <laughs> <laughs> right now. Yeah. So anyway, thanks for the everyone, the messages and Facebook stuff and Twitter and everything else. Everything's fine. Appreciate that. I uh, hope you enjoyed the conversation with Chris Doring. We'll have him on some throughout the fall. Neat guy, knowledgeable guy, and uh, played a lot of football. What do you think? He actually made a distinction between the vulgarity part of it with coaches, you know, yelling, screaming, cussing all the time. He kind of made a distinction, drew a line that, you know, it's not just cussing. I mean, you know, bad words. That's one thing, but when it then starts to kind of delve over into the berating of players and and that kind of stuff, which, yeah, some of that can go over the line. And coaches have always done a lot of that, and, and it's a tricky thing. You know, there are some really good coaches who maybe sense that they have certain players who need that, who will actually respond positively to that, and maybe they will. And I never did. I had a coach who tried that with me during the middle of a game one time. You know how in college, Beaver, like they're the quarterback, you come off the field, you go to the sideline, and then we go over and we sit and we talk on the phone to our coach up in the booth. And we were playing at Arkansas one year, and I had a bad game and uh, or was having a bad game. And so during one of the, you know, between series, I go to the bench, I go over there, I pick up the phone, and the coach – he just had enough of me. <laughs> and so it delved over into this berating thing. So I just hung the phone up. Just hung it up. Like he's up in the booth. I'm on the sideline. It's hung it up. I don't want to hear it. And so the phone's ringing. <laughs> and some of my teammates are coming. Hey, Matt. Hey, man. He wants to talk to you. Like they're answering the phone on the sideline. Hello? Put Matt back on the phone. And that's, I don't want to talk to him. I'm not talking to him. <laughs> so we had one of those come to Jesus things. But I've always rebelled against that. I guess that's it. I mean, a coach has to figure out. You know, there, you may have some kids on your team who not only are they not going to respond positively to the, the language and the berating, they may have a very negative response. <laughs> and that's kind of always the way I was. I'd rebel against that stuff because I didn't grow up around it. Uh, language, yelling, screaming, I didn't grow up around that. So for me to get it, I always kind of rebelled against it. I get mad really easily and want to fight, want to knock somebody's teeth out. Uh, in the working world, Beaver, I've only had one time when someone who's my boss, you know, who signed the checks, <clears throat> flipped a switch in a meeting. And it really wasn't called for. And this, there's been times maybe I did deserve it. In this case, I didn't deserve it. Um, 
this boss just flipped the switch and decided he was going to get red-faced and red-eyed and get in my face. And so as a young person, you know, 15, 20 years ago, unfortunately, I would have squared my fist up right up under his chin before he realized what happened. Well, and then you get in big trouble. So as an older man, (laughs) I've learned that when I feel that fight, everybody has a fight or flight um, reaction to stuff. When when the adrenaline pumps to and, and it gets to a certain heart rate, your fight or flight it'll kick in. And I've kind of as I've gotten older, I've learned that when I feel fight, that's when you have to leave. You just leave. You just, you got to go. You just get out of there because fighting is not good. It's never good. It never ends good, especially you know in in a work scenario. <laughs> so that's what I've learned. You know, if things get heated or I feel Backed into a corner just right, I got to get out of there or else I'll do something, you know, tear stuff up and break windows, you know, and that kind of stuff. You can't do that. And uh, so it didn't happen as much. The truth is the vulgarity and the berating stuff doesn't come your way very much out in the working world, in the adult world. It just doesn't. So, you know, why is it so accepted as part of this is the way things are with coaches, just like like A.J. Brown tweeted, why is that accepted that way? You know, I just don't believe that it has to be. Maybe sometimes someone deserves it, but, but certainly not on a daily basis with, with all of your team. On that note, this guy who's that coach, his name is Jason Brown. P-Town Chris texted the show and said, Jason Brown was a terrible on-the-field coach, and I mean awful. And he was degrading, but he gave those guys chance after chance. He loved those kids, and they would run through a wall for him. If he was a better X's and O's coach, no one would have an issue. And then he said that we hit the nail on the head. The vulgarity was a cover-up for him not being a good coach, and that's what it is for a lot of guys. And a lot of it, too, again, is they're repeating what they have seen their whole life. (laughs) Okay? Seriously, that's what a lot of that is. All right, 38 days from today, it'll be August the 31st, and we'll be kicking off football for State and Ole Miss and Southern Miss. 38 days, and team number 38 is... None of y'all know that fight song. That's Oklahoma State, the Cowboys. The Oklahoma State Cowboys fight song. Not bad, though. They open the season not on the 31st, but Oklahoma State opens on Friday night, August the 30th, at Oregon State. Boy, that's going to be a lot of orange on that field, isn't it? Oklahoma State at Oregon State. Friday, August the 31st. Their other non-conference games are McNeese and Tulsa. (laughs) Boo. Well, you know, they got Oregon State on there. The hands-down worst team in the Pac-12. So Oklahoma State's schedule. Again, they're in the Big 12, and so with a schedule like that, 
they definitely would have to be an undefeated team to have a shot at the playoff. I think even one loss with that Big 12 schedule and those three non-conferences, even one loss is going to move you out on the border of being a playoff team if you're Oklahoma State. Scheduling is so important. You know, if you're thinking about, you know, you think you can be a playoff team. I think, isn't Larry Fedora back out there on the staff at Oklahoma State now under Gundy? It's like Coach Fedora went around the world and back to Oklahoma State. I have to look that up, but I believe that's true. Last year in the regular season, six losses for Oklahoma State and six wins. They started fast, won their first two games, put up 50 points in each, 58-17 over Missouri State, then whipped up on South Alabama, 55-13. And then they upset Boise State, who was ranked 17th at the time, went 3-0 that Boise State win, 44-21. They then went 3-6 and the rest of the season. Their losses last year at Oklahoma State were to Texas Tech, yeah, it was their first loss last year, Texas Tech. Texas Tech put up 40-something points on their defense. 41-17. to Lost to Iowa State. Gave up 48. They gave up 31 points to that Kansas State offense. How did that happen? Lost to Baylor. Lost to Oklahoma. They gave Oklahoma a game, though. That was a great game. 48-47 against number 6 Oklahoma. The rivalries can bring out the best. But they beat Missouri in the bowl game 38-33, and that got their seventh win of the year. That's Oklahoma State. All right, coming up next, we're going to reach out to Don Hinton of the MHSAA. Stick around in the Farm Bureau studio. You're listening to The Matt Wyatt Show. show. I'm sitting here talking away and didn't have my mic turned on, Beaver. What's wrong with me, man? What is wrong with me? Hey, uh, Beaver, my call screen zapped out on me again, so I just text you the number. And you're the man. You got it? And you have to maybe just let me know when we get him on. Okie dokie. Back on the show, I'm Matt in the Farm Bureau studio. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. They are your home team at Farm Bureau. Local agents, competitive rates, fast service, friendly service. That's Farm Bureau. And this show stays connected to you around the clock because of C Spire, the number one network in Mississippi. C Spire, customer inspired. Yep. 39 years ago today, Caddyshack showed up in theaters for the first time. I want you to kill every golfer on the course. Check me if I'm wrong, Sandy, but if I kill all the golfers, they're going to lock me up and throw away the key. Golfers! They're great kid, not golfers! The little brown furry rodents! We can do that. 
He said, we can do that. We don't even need a reason. <laughs> don't even need a reason. All right. So congrats to all the Caddyshack fans. And also, I think congrats are in order for high school basketball fans. Um, the State High School Activities Association is, you know, they, they've done this with football where the state championships have been moving around and rotating to the Division I college campuses here in the state of Mississippi. And now basketball is switching it up. And starting this coming season, the finals are going to be hosted either at State or at Ole Miss or either the Pavilion or the Hump, one or the other, and some other tweaks in there. And to tell us a little bit about it, I got some questions. I'm sure you do too. Uh, we're going to talk to the man, the head man, Executive Director of the MHSAA, Don Hinton, on your radio right now as we speak. Don, I appreciate some time. I know y'all are burning rubber down the highway, headed to some more meetings. Y'all, y'all looks like y'all have had a lot of meetings going on here lately. We have. We're about to have our fourth meeting, Matt. We travel around the state. We have eight districts, and so we, our all of our schools, administrators, and coaches come in, and so we're on our way to Leland, Mississippi, for our district three meeting. I'm actually here in Vicksburg, standing here looking at the, the rising Mississippi River right now. But uh-huh. yeah, we've had some good meetings, and uh, we've got some more to go. Good deal. Yeah, that river is rising. But hey, um, this idea has been floated. It seems like now for a while, of you know the basketball championships maybe playing some some places other than the Coliseum. And so, how long how how long had y'all been in discussions before finally making the decision to do this, Don? Well, it, it's been for a while, for a few years. You know, we've continued as you see to try to enhance uh, all of our championship events and you know, we our volleyball we played at our universities we play our softball now at our universities and uh and of course our football has been we feel like one of the best changes and that we've ever that we've ever made it's just been fantastic and so you know and our basketball coaches over the last few years have taken notice of that you know we just to, just to have an opportunity to play in a in a true basketball facility uh is something that is you know we we want to do there's some fantastic facilities that are out there in our state right now and so but but also matt you know we we play 84 games in in nine days and we start with the quarterfinals and that's where we've talked about last year there was some construction uh issues at the coliseum so it gave us an opportunity we we actually played at the home home site of the higher speed so Mm -hmm. actually played it at home on that first game and then those that qualified to go so that was 48 games that we had in that three-day day, day period, 24 in the north and 24 in the south. And so now we're going to take those quarterfinals and take those same 48 games, play 24 games in the north, 24 games in the south, and play them at, uh, at our community colleges or, or a university uh, that has a, has a very, very nice facility. And now you got north playing in the north, south playing in the south. Those games were played for at Jackson State University. And at the Coliseum, if you'll remember, we played the girls at one site and we played the boys at the other site. So, uh, and then we rotate. We did that for four years. And so now, you know, those good venues, though, we're still, you know, in the preparation stage, planning stage. Uh, we, we're just about to finalize it. We've not really seen a, uh, an announcement from the MSA. We're still with the University of Mississippi final. They're still schedule, you know, basketball schedule's not come out yet right. for either Mississippi State or Ole Miss. And I also want to throw in there that, you know, that 
the University of Southern Miss, of which I'm a, a graduate, uh, they're doing renovation, and it's coming up, I think, a $3 million project maybe I saw from the city of Hattiesburg helping them, and so in the future, mm-hmm. there you go, and I'm right. going to even take that, just like in football, man, you know, we're state football championships on uh, this this year again at Southern Miss, and the very next week we'll have a Mississippi-Alabama game there, so a lot to look forward to down there in Hattiesburg for that. But anyway, then, to stay in Jackson, which we would certainly like so the, the big house still uh, the big house from the, the standpoint of tradition I grew up going there and mm-hmm. uh, my whole life actually watching basketball and everything else and to play our semifinals there and so there there's another 24 games so we play 48 quarterfinals the first three days Thursday Friday Saturday come to Jackson play looking to play on Monday Tuesday and Wednesday those are 24 games and then a final 12 game. Uh, hopefully at, uh, at one of the best facilities in, in the state. And, again, there, there's some details that still have to be worked out uh, with, uh, with all of that. Sure. Don Hinton on your radio. Last question, Don, this is something I ought to know, but I don't know off the top of my head. When do we expect those SEC schedules to come out so that you can then know how to plan the finals? They, we, they've not told us that. We've just okay. been waiting on them. Uh, and but I know that universities made a request to try to play in it, and and again that's the difference, Matt, in basketball and football. And football, the, the college seasons are over. Mm-hmm. Other than the S, you know, play on the same weekend as the SEC championship, and it's always in Atlanta. So it's not an issue at those places. But in basketball, uh, particularly again down at Southern Miss with Conference USA, at that time of the year, they're still. Uh, they may play boys or girls at home based on what, what their record is in TV. They even schedule games that late in Conference USA based on best based on records and based on TV. Sure. Uh, and at the universities, either the boy, the male, the men, or the the women are have you know could possibly be at home because they're still in in their um, in their regular season. Uh, right. Now and, and now. The ladies are playing the SEC tournament on that championship weekend that we talked about, but it'll only be the men's schedule that they would have to try to work out for us. Okay. And if it didn't, okay. then there's a possibility again of Mississippi State. And so that's where we are with that. Okay, perfect. Don, listen, I really do appreciate a few minutes with you here on a, a work day when y'all are busy. Uh, congrats on this. I think people are excited, and um, we'll be listening when we get the final dates. Thank you. Well, thanks, Matt. It's always great to be on the show. Appreciate what you Thank you. Thank you. That's Don Hinton, the executive director of the MHSAA, Mississippi High School Activities Association. The, the news here, you, you heard him kind of describing um, you're juggling so many games in basketball, but, again, this is just coming out over the last 24 hours. You need to know this as a Mississippi sports fan. Just like in football, when they moved the championships for high school football to a college campus rotation. They'll host them in Starkville, Oxford, and Hattiesburg. Last year they were in Hattiesburg, going to be again this year. Then they start back in Oxford and Starkville. Now they're going to do the same thing with basketball starting this year. It'll happen in the spring of 2020. Ole Miss or State will host the finals, the last 12 games. Uh, Ricky Neves, who's an associate director for the MHSAA, confirmed that to WTVA up in Tupelo yesterday. All right, the championships are scheduled for March 5th through the 7th. Right now, you don't have the home and away SEC basketball schedule in your hand. 
So they can't tell you if it's going to be State or Ole Miss. <laughs> but it'll be one of them. March the 5th through the 7th, once the SEC schedule comes out, we'll know which one. And the other thing is this. The semifinal round will take place at the Mississippi Coliseum in Jackson, March the 2nd through the 4th, the week before. So semifinals in Jackson, finals on a college campus. If you back up, the first and second rounds of the basketball tournaments, the higher seed team will host it. Then you get into north half and south half quarterfinals. The north half quarterfinals are going to be at Itawamba Community College and Mississippi Valley State. The south half quarterfinals will be at the Coast Coliseum and Pearl River Community College. Then they'll go to Jackson for the semis, March 2nd through the 4th. And then the last 12 teams will go to either State or Ole Miss, whichever one hosts the finals this year, um, once we see what the SEC schedule is. So it is a change, and they are sending it those finals away from the Coliseum. And look, I'm going to be honest with you. Prior to the construction of the pavilion at Ole Miss, I'm not so sure that the Itawamba Community College Arena wasn't the nicest one in the state. Now, it wasn't the biggest, but the nicest, it might be the nicest. And then they built the pavilion, and it's by far the nicest uh, right now. All right. Busy show. Hey, Beaver, I appreciate you, man. Tip of the cap to you. Great job. Thanks, Matt. Great job. Hard working. Hard, hardest working? Nobody said hardest working producer in all of radio. According to the text line. See y'all tomorrow. See ya. You're listening to the Matt White Show.